We're uh, continuing this morning in what has been called um, the uh, Biblical Theology of Babylon, this series kind of looking at how God used kings and kingdoms to fulfill his purposes, how through predictive prophecy God set forth purposes that were irreversible to make his name known, to make his glory proclaimed, and to bring about a change in the heart of his covenant people. Uh, Last week, we ended um, in looking at uh, really the Assyrian Empire and how uh, King Hezekiah was spared from the Assyrians by God's hand. He was saved, he was delivered, and yet he quickly forgot how God acted on his behalf. We saw that God uh, fulfilled his word to take the Assyrians with a hook in their nose back the way they came, and his hand of um, restraint was placed on the Assyrians, allowing uh, for a, a time in which his wrath would be held back and the people of Judah would be given yet another opportunity to repent, yet another opportunity to um, make things right with the Lord their God. And what we'll see today as we move into another of the major prophets, uh, into Jeremiah, about 100 years later, we'll see that um, what is transpiring is that the people of Judah continue to fight with sin to fight with syncretism, to fight with idolatry. And because of that, the friendly Babylonian envoys that visited uh, in our account last week are back. And this time, they're not friendly Babylonian envoys. They are an authorized power marching under God's orders to bring punishment and destruction to not only Judah, but also their capital city of Jerusalem. And that's where we are today. The texts that we'll be looking at are in uh, Jeremiah chapter 5 and Jeremiah chapter 7. And in that text, we find the title of this message. And the title of the message, as we find it, is from Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 19. Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Why is it that now we see the Babylonians menacing God's people? What is it that they have done to merit this new visit from Babylon? As we begin into... into, um, this context and answering this question, why has the Lord our God done these things to us? I want to look at Babylon in a new light, and we're going to do that by taking a a quick stop in Habakkuk chapter 1. We have a very vivid picture of Babylon. They're no longer friendly envoys with a fruit basket saying, glad you're well, Hezekiah. Instead, we see an army unparalleled in strength, marching in conquest, and now showing up on Jerusalem's doorstep. Habakkuk chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. That's a picture presented by Habakkuk, who is a contemporary of Jeremiah, of what Babylon looked like in those days. And that conquering force is now authorized by God to talk to and to be used as a very vivid illustration 
um, addressing the people of Jerusalem and their guilt. And that's what we're going to look at today and make some applications to our lives as God's new covenant people. Let's go together to Jeremiah chapter 5. We're going to briefly go through um, this uh, chapter 5, and what we're going to see here is very much written like a, like a legal argument. The first chapters of Jeremiah read uh, similar to what the um, women amongst us are studying on Tuesday nights from the book of Hosea. There's much talk of unfaithfulness, of adultery, of spiritual um, whoredom, if you forgive the word. Um, And those charges are being brought against God's people. Jeremiah is presenting this legal case. And what we see in this section that we're going to read from verses 1 through 19 is first and foremost, the charges that God brings against his people. And then we'll see the sentence. And that sentence is going to be carried out by the hand of the Babylonians. And then from there, we'll go to chapter 7 and we'll look at um, an appeal, if you will, from God's people to God. Jeremiah 5, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, These are only the poor. They have no sense. For they do not know the way of their Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had all burst the bonds. I'm going to stop there just for a moment because what we see in view here is a key part of Jeremiah's theology. It's a key part of what we know in, in the teaching that we've been under, the doctrine of total depravity. For um, me personally, the book of Jeremiah has been instrumental in helping me understand some very key things about our nature as people and about God's nature as holy. Um, many of you know that we left uh, Pacific Hope um, almost 10 years ago to go to the mission field. And when we left, Pacific Hope was not a reformed church, but rather a reforming church. <laughs> And so um, the teaching that I had been under had been very different than the teaching that you guys have been blessed with over the course of the last decade. And uh, as we left, went to the mission field, we found ourselves in Costa Rica, not able to speak much Spanish. And uh, the churches that we would visit often resulted in Jennifer falling asleep. (laughs) She, uh, Sorry about that. Uh, Either not understanding the message or, quite frankly, the teaching not being worthwhile. (laughs) And uh, in the midst of that, God led me to um, the book of Jeremiah. And I began to study and to read. Um, One of my visits back to San Diego, uh, Pastor John took me to the evangelical bookstore and said, Hey, uh, carte blanche, uh, buy what the Lord puts on your heart. And one of the books that I was drawn to was by Philip Ryken, a commentary on Jeremiah that has literally um, changed my theology, changed my understanding of uh, who Christ is. And much of that has to do with what we see Jeremiah presenting in chapter 5, this doctrine of total depravity, this doctrine of nobody passes muster. If we look again at verse 1 of chapter 5, Jeremiah is given this challenge, and he says, Run to and fro the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I might pardon her. 
that is uh, so much a parallel of what Abraham does in making his appeal with the account of Lot, right? Are there 50? Are there 45? Are there 40? Are there 30? Are there 20? Are there 10 righteous that I might save Sodom, right? And we know the answer to that. There wasn't. God destroyed it. And we know that this question that we see in Jeremiah also shapes Paul's theology. And we have this amazing question, this amazing statement in Romans where he says, there is not one righteous, not one who seeks God. There is no one worthy of sparing. And with that, we see that theme throughout the book of Jeremiah. There is no one. All of that points to Jesus Christ. All of that points to Christ, who himself became the consequence of the sins of God's people. Pay that price for us. And so, as we see this legal charge, the first thing that Jeremiah establishes is there is nobody that passes muster. He says, surely these are just the poor people, and they don't know God's word. So we're going to go to the great people. We're going to go to the mayor. We're going to go to the priests. We're going to go to the authorities. Surely they know God's word, right? And they didn't. And here's the interesting thing um, about this study. We've learned a little bit about kings as we go. We've seen Hezekiah. We've talked about different kings. Uh, I think you may have had a handout from a couple of weeks ago that lists kings. And we have a little qualifier. God tells us if they were a good king or they're a bad king. And um, I think I have a slide. Uh, we can go back to the slide with the king names, or maybe we took that one out. Yeah, so we had Hezekiah where we were last week as a, as a good king. Then we've had his sons, um, Manasseh and Ammon, who were bad kings. And then in the ministry of Jeremiah, we've had Josiah. And we've had a king that lasted three whopping months before he was uh, smitten. <laughs> and then we've had Jehoiakim, who's a bad king. And very, we are very likely in this chapter 5, although the text doesn't specify, in Jehoiakim's ministry uh, or um, administration as a king, right? But we've been through Josiah's ministry, Josiah's reign. And that's very important. Uh, if we can remember from the book of Kings, uh, Josiah uh, was doing a spring cleaning in the temple. And they're going through, and uh, they discover the books of the law, dusty and abandoned. God's word, God's law, neglected in the temple. And in that, God allowed Josiah to, uh, to rip his clothes, to put on sackcloth, to mourn, and to, to seek after the Lord. And he brought most of the people of Jerusalem out, had them stand for the reading of the entirety of the law. And in that, we see a, a little bit of a, maybe a pseudo-reformation, right? There was some change, outward change at the very least, but not inward change. And so the biggest challenge that Jeremiah addresses is that even though Jer Josiah brought out this book of the law again, nobody really cared what was in it. Nobody really cared what the, what the word of the Lord said. And so Jeremiah is surveying, right, going through his survey notebook, and he's looking through Jerusalem, and he said, the poor people, they don't know God's word. The simple people, right? The great people, the priests, they don't know the word of God. And verse 5 says, but they all alike have broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. There is a defiance towards God and his word that is plaguing the entire nation. So then at verse 6, Jeremiah chapter 5, we go from this list of, of allegations of legal charges to the consequence, Babylon being used to deliver the sentence. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn to pieces because their transgressions are many and their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. You have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, 
They committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Should I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Stop there for just a moment again to look at what we're seeing in this, this sentence, this allegation. God is asking this question, how can I pardon you? Um, it's very noteworthy in verse 6 that he says that their apostasies are great. This is a, a contrast or, or a complementary statement to what we see in verse 3 where they refuse to repent. So we've learned together um, at various times um, that repenting is turning from the wicked ways and seeking after the Lord. Well, the apostasy is the exact opposite. It's knowing the way of the Lord and turning back the way you came. So you see this, the people of Israel having this sort of false reform under Josiah as they're re-exposed to the, the law, and then they go back to their adulterous ways. They're, they're not seeking the Lord and moving towards sanctification, towards being a holy people, but they're, they're going back and forth. They're, going, they're just unable to seek after the Lord, and God has now had enough. He gave a reprieve to Hezekiah in his day. He turned back the Assyrians, but now his wrath is overflowing. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those who are no gods. Verses 12 and 13 are very much a parallel to texts that we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, where the scoffers say, this day of the Lord, it's not going to happen. It's not coming. We have nothing to be concerned about. And so there were false prophets in Jeremiah's day that had this sense of security Jerusalem's not going to fall. Remember what happened in Hezekiah's day? We're good. Sure, the Babylonians are now here. Sure, they're working on a siege ramp, but we're good. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. We're going to continue reading um, 14 through 19. The sentence. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts. Remember that term from last week? That's how God, uh, through Isaiah, refers to himself, the God of armies. The God of hosts. Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. For the underliners out there, underline that in your Bibles. That verse 19 is so telling. When your people say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. We know the promise from Deuteronomy, right? 
If you do these things, if you serve me alone, it'll go well with you in that land. You will have blessing. But if not, the conditional covenant, right, then you're out of there. And that's exactly what he's saying. You wanted to serve their gods. You wanted to talk about the Assyrian gods and the Philistine gods and Baal and Marduk and all the Babylonian gods. If that's what you want, you can go be maids and servants and slaves in their country. And what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks looking in Jeremiah is that is precisely what transpires. With that text in view, and there's all sorts of texts that say that same message. Jeremiah says that um, many different ways um, throughout the first portions of Jeremiah. Uh, You can read chapter 6 for homework. Uh, It's a great text as well that tells us and describes Babylon, how Babylon is an instrument in that uh, sanctification. But I want us to spend the rest of the morning today in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 would be the appeal of the people, of the guilty people of Judah, saying, but Lord, we're your chosen people. We'd like to appeal your verdict. And God says, before you speak another word, I'd like to address your argument. I'd like to address your appeal. You might be my chosen people, but this is what I have to say to you. And so um, this text uh, is an amazing response where God, by way of Jeremiah, talks to his people about why they think they should be let off the hook. So let's look at that together. We're going to read um, from 1 uh, through verse 16. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, and you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Those are powerful words. And where does God place Jeremiah to deliver this message? Outside the temple. Everybody's going to the temple to worship the Lord. And in the midst of how they have behaved, Jeremiah covers just about all of the Ten Commandments. And God says, you didn't keep any of those. And you want to show up here and think you're safe? I'm going to uh, read from this uh, beloved book uh, Brother John got me here. Um, 
from uh, Riken's commentary. And um, Riken quotes John Calvin as well, and he says this, The content of this temple sermon can be summarized in this way. Religious observance without moral obedience cannot save. John Calvin put it like this, Sacrifices are of no importance or value before God unless those who offer them wholly devote themselves to God with a sincere heart. Riken restates, It can be stated even more briefly, Those who seek justification without sanctification need reformation. One more time. Those who seek justification without sanctification need reformation. Riken says, The first thing to understand about Jeremiah's message is that it was delivered to a religiously observant people. Jeremiah was preaching to people who were on their way to temple to offer sacrifices to God. The people he told to mend their ways were devout. They were churchgoers. They wore their Passover best and had their scrolls tucked under their arms. Reformation must always begin with the people of God. And he goes on to say, um, he goes on to make some statements about what he calls their temple theology. They had all their conduct that they did six days a week. And they put on a different appearance, would put on their, their best attire, and go and fake their worship to the Lord. That was unacceptable to the Lord. That is unacceptable to our God today. That idea of, well, our sins are taken care of. We're going to go and we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to be delivered because we are God's chosen people. We'll look at that again in a moment. But what God is interested in here is an about face. And amend your ways, abide by the conditional covenant that you've set forth, and then there can be forgiveness. You can continue to dwell in this place. What God is interested in is in the character of his people and the obedience to his word we see um, the expression, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, repeated three times for emphasis. That is their hope. That is, most certainly, we have this place where we go to proclaim our God. This is what differentiates us from all the others around us. Because we have this temple, God will treat us with favor. And God's argument to that is amazing. He says, how about we take a little field trip to Shiloh? And what we know about Shiloh is that it was a place where the tabernacle in all of its ornate construction had been set up to represent and to, to demonstrate God's presence amongst his people. We know that Shiloh was actually destroyed twice, once by the Philistines and once by the Assyrians. Shiloh was abandoned. What's more, in the time of Jeremiah, Shiloh would have been a really nice Babylonian outpost. <laughs> the Babylonians had already moved in and surrounded the area, the people in Jerusalem couldn't go to Shiloh if they tried. And if they did, they certainly wouldn't be thinking about worshiping the Lord. They'd, think about, they'd be thinking about not getting hauled off to Babylon. And if you think about that, that is an amazing aspect of how God dealt with his covenant people. There's a quote that we'll look at in just a moment that says that God's chosen people often want covenant blessing without covenant obedience. And that's precisely what they wanted. And God said, it doesn't work that way. Well, Jeremiah points to Emmanuel, God with us. What Shiloh says is, God's forsaken us. God stepped away. God has turned his back. If we looked at verse 16, it has a very difficult bit of theology in there. Well, we've talked about and looked at in Exodus as Moses being an interceder, an intercessor for God's people. Look what God says to Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. The message is clear to Jeremiah. These people 
are expecting this special treatment because they show up at the temple, but that's not enough. Let's uh, borrow from Riken again just for a moment here. This is uh, a really great explanation of this whole idea of temple theology. And that temple theology answers the question, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? It's precisely because of a misplaced um, and false um, assurance that God has to deal so, so sternly with his people. Riken says, The problem was that God's people thought God's promise about the temple gave them a freedom to be immoral. The temple had become a superstition. They assumed that as long as they fulfilled their religious obligations, they could do whatever they wanted with the rest of their lives. Their temple theology had nothing to say about holy living. They assumed that God would never judge them for their sins, which is why Jeremiah tried to reason them, reason with them in verse 8 of chapter 7. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. They wanted faith without practice. They wanted covenant blessing without covenant obedience. They wanted to be justified without being sanctified. Jeremiah's message is also a strong warning to everyone who seeks to be justified before God by religious observance. Some put their trust in church attendance by saying, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church. Others put their trust in religious experience by saying, I've been baptized, baptized, baptized. Some put their trust in church affiliation. Others put trust in their religious duties and observance. All these things are good in themselves. That is what's so dangerous about the temptation to put confidence in outward religion. The people of God were supposed to go there to worship. Nor is there anything wrong with going to church, being born again, being baptized, believing in the doctrines of grace. Not only is there nothing wrong with all these things, all of them are positively necessary for growing in the Christian faith. I'm going to end the citation with this. But do not put your trust in these things. Do not trust church attendance, a conversion experience, a sacrament, a church membership for salvation. Instead, like the Apostle Paul, worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Trust in the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. He is all of our hope and our trust. That's temple theology. That's temple theology. Um, Pastor John told me I wasn't allowed to teach from Mark, but I'll give a little spoiler, right, when you get to Mark chapter 11. Um, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, we find Christ in the temple. We find Christ overthrowing the tables, and we find Christ citing this very text that we're looking at in Jeremiah chapter 7 today. He combines the citation with Jeremiah 7 and also Isaiah 56 verse 7, and he talks about, you've made my house a den of robbers. And Christ is interested in citing this passage because he wants to break down that false temple worship that again found itself to be prevalent in his day. What's interesting is that um, in that Mark passage, let's go there for just a minute, just a quick minute. Mark chapter 11. Eleven, fifteen through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. What's amazing here is that the chief priests and the scribes may, may have been tempted to think that Jesus was quoting Jeremiah the prophet. On the contrary, Jeremiah the prophet was speaking the words of Jesus the Christ. My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The message of God has been consistent for the people of Israel as well as for his new covenant people. He alone is our righteousness. He alone is our salvation. He alone is our deliverance. He alone is worthy of our worship. That message has been the same and is unchanging. If our confidence, if our understanding of our salvation is from anything other than Christ, it's misplaced, it's misguided, and the words in which we trust are deceptive. Going back to Jeremiah chapter 7. God's warning is, is clear. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I have made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of all the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So while for us, there's hope in the fact that our temple theology really points to Christ, the words here are ominous and will help us be prepared to look at texts next week and the following week to see how God is going to use the uh, Babylonian empire, to use the Babylonian conquerors to carry out his judgment so that ultimately the message will go through to the people of Judah and they will understand that their failure to repent carries with it grave consequences. So we um, see this text, and we understand that what um, God has brought with is a list of scathing charges against his people. He's read the sentence. The appeal of us being your chosen people so we're off the hook isn't enough in and of itself. And all of that points to Christ, the Redeemer. Let's, uh, let's pray and just reflect on the fact that as we're here this morning, we know that we're not here um, to, uh, to earn anything. We're here simply as an expression of gratitude to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to Jesus, the only righteous one who became righteousness for us.